there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me. Black Lives Matter. I, Sarah Strumming, am committed to anti-racism and the companies that I oversee, the Cognitive Canine and Cogdog Radio, are also committed to anti-racism. I recognize my privilege here and I recognize that I have a platform where I can use my voice and I intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey. And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hey friends, I'm returning from a brief hiatus and I want to talk about something that I think is kind of interesting that I've definitely observed as a pattern in my clients and it also happened to me. So we're going to talk about what I'm going to refer to as third dog paralysis. So a few weeks ago, I talked about upgrade dogs and I refer to the second dog that you buy to do sports with as your upgrade dog. So a lot of people, most people get into dog sports with the dog that they have. So their pet and they enjoy themselves. They have a great time and they decide they're going to intentionally acquire a sport model next time. Um, And then that sport model is their upgrade. And a lot of times that leads to a rude awakening. It leads to a lot of problems. It leads to, you know, people figuring out that if they're going to have an upgrade dog, they need to also upgrade their skills. So um, we'll link that episode in the show notes. And I hope that you'll check that one out too, because this is kind of the follow-up to that which is that you have your lovely first dog who is maybe not very fast, but fast enough. Um, Maybe you put a championship title on them. Maybe you go to nationals, et cetera. And then you get your upgrade dog and you struggle and it's hard and you learn a lot. And when it's time to get your third dog, it is normal and natural to feel a bit paralyzed because your second dog was so hard 
and your first dog wasn't exactly what you want either for sport's sake. And so you probably learned a lot about kind of what breeder um, and what type of dog. And so you buy the third dog who you think is going to be the right dog for you. And they might be a lot like your upgrade dog, or they might be more of a happy medium, um, kind of depending on where you'd like that pendulum to swing. But regardless of what kind of third dog you get, I universally observe people feeling paralyzed as far as how to train or proceed with that dog. And you get the puppy, you're just, you're so scared to mess anything up. And I'm going to say that when I got my third dog, which is Felix, I wasn't afraid to mess him up, um, but I was surprised by some of the curveballs that he threw. So we just kind of went slower. And I am going to say that I did not really experience paralysis in the way that my clients do, but I have experienced a very different timeline, a very different trajectory with him than I had with my other dogs. And I think I've learned a lot from adjusting to the timeline that the dog presents. So I'm gonna give you my tips for kind of shaking yourself out of this paralysis because the reason I didn't feel paralyzed by my third dog was because I was prepared for that feeling because I had watched so many clients go through it and I had coached them through it. So I kind of had these bullet points in mind um, to apply to my situation. And the first one is know that you will screw this up. (laughs) You will make mistakes. You will. So just kind of rather than being so scared to do anything because you're scared to make a mistake, know that there will be mistakes, that that is an inherent part of the process. They're going to come and you're going to deal with them as they arrive. I'm going to be a complete nerd for a second and quote um, Harry Potter. Actually, I'm going to quote Hagrid from Harry Potter. Hagrid says to Harry, what's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does. And that's been kind of one of my dog training mantras, um, especially in raising a puppy. It's been a mantra for me in other areas, other tougher areas of my life as well. What's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does. So keep that in mind. That's one that, I mean, I jot that one down in my training journal sometimes when I feel stuck. What's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does. So you're gonna mess up and you're also gonna learn from that mess up and you're also going to get out of it you're gonna get to the other side. So that's number one, know that you will make mistakes. Accept them, embrace them, just give them a big old hug and take them in because that is how you will learn. And then to piggyback off of that point, don't forget you're not in this alone. There's help. Whatever the problem is that you're experiencing, there is help for that problem. With online learning being available now, you can learn from the trainer that you need to learn from. The fact that they geographically may not be accessible to you doesn't matter like it used to. So remember that, know that there is help for you. So what's coming will come, we'll meet it when it does, and we'll get help if we need that help. So just don't be afraid to reach for that help. Know that there's help and know that you will reach for it early and often. Okay, don't try to fly solo. There's so much great help. I don't try to fly solo. I have great in-depth training conversations on like a weekly basis with people who are geniuses. And sometimes I can't figure out a problem until I talk it out with a colleague. It's very important to kind of build your cabinet so that you can reach for that cabinet 
when those things show up that are difficult. So our next point is the only timeline that counts is your own. So if you buy a sport puppy and the litter mates are, you know, running full courses by 10 months of age and your puppy is still, you know, learning how to be a dog, understand that the only timeline, again, that matters is your own. If you're the person whose dog is running full courses at 10 months old, because that's your timeline, then that's what matters for you. So don't feel pressured one way or the other. What works and what's right for you and your dog at this time is the right way to go. So don't be pressured by other people's timelines. Don't be pressured by competitive goals at this, you know, when the dog is young, just recognize that the timeline will always shift. So the dog is gonna present reasons for the timeline to shift. And that's a lot of what I went through with Felix. Um, And Felix is a wonderful dog and he is a joy to train. And early on, it wasn't as easy for us and it's interesting because his father um you know his breeder told me that his father at about age three became a really great performance partner but it kind of did take that long and i'm going to say felix followed pretty much the same timeline and i was at a point in my life where it was easy for me to just go okay okay kid take your time Training should not feel hard. And if it does, you need to put that project on the shelf, get some help with it, move on, right? So anything, any project, I just kind of gave myself permission to take any project that was difficult and put it on the shelf. And then I'd revisit it later. And half the time when I revisited it, we weren't having the same problems. And the other half of the time when I revisited it, if we were still struggling, I reached for a colleague and I figured it out. It's okay to back burner things that you and the dog as a team do not feel ready for yet, regardless of what other people are doing and regardless of um, what the litter mates might be doing, etc. To kind of reiterate, the only timeline that counts is yours. Don't worry about anybody else's timeline. Next bullet is embrace learning. Okay, so know that things can be solved and learn to enjoy that learning process, that discomfort, lean into the discomfort that learning something new always provides. Learning something new is hard, okay? And if you enjoy it, it's kind of an, an acquired taste if you enjoy it. I think we all know people who would stay in school forever if they could get paid to do that, my partner being one of them. Um, whereas I'm a little bit more stubborn than that. And I struggle to learn new things a little bit more than that. So I've had to really say, you know, when, when something I don't understand is presented to me or something that I'm not very good at, so much worse, man. That's like my nightmare. Um, it's hard for me to understand and I'm not good at it. I probably don't even want to do it. But when it's a dog training thing, I don't accept that answer. I don't walk away from it. I lean into the discomfort And I'm going to tell you that 100% of the time so far, I have come out a stronger trainer, a smarter trainer, and I feel so good having learned something from the situation. I feel like the situation then is not just annoying, it is an educational opportunity. And that is so, so important. So embrace the learning, lean into the discomfort of learning something new. And then finally... I say this all the time and it absolutely applies here. Just do the next right thing. 
So when I was training Felix um, and he was young, I bought a training journal for him that I made online custom. And it says that on the cover, it says just do the next right thing because that has been my mantra and it is my mantra now, which is that you just, you know, chip away at things one by doing the next right piece at a time. I liken this to uh, climbing a mountain. So one of my favorite things to do is to hike at really high elevation um, in my home state of Colorado. I don't live there anymore, but um, it's one of my favorite things to do. And one of the reasons I think it's my favorite thing is because it forces me into this meditative take the next step kind of situation. Um, It forces me to breathe because the air is super thin (laughs) and take water breaks and put one foot in front of the other. And if that isn't a perfect analogy for dog training, I don't know what is, okay? Take breaks to take care of yourself and your dog, breathe and put one foot in front of the other. And you'll get to the top of that mountain. It And again, the only timeline that counts is yours. So you'll get up there. You know, it might take me a really long time to climb, you know, 2000 feet. Um, and it might take a more athletic or in-shape person less time. Um, or a person with less orthopedic struggles than I have, it might take them less time. And that's gotta be okay. The only timeline that counts is mine. And doing the next right thing is the only thing any of us ever can actually do. So I'm gonna go back through uh, my bullet points here. When you have your third dog and you're feeling that tinge of paralysis, number one, know that you will screw up and do not forget Hagrid's words. What's coming will come and we'll meet it when it does. Number two, do not forget there's always help for you. No matter what the problem is, there's somebody out there who knows the answer. Dig until you find them. And do that early and often as well. Don't wait. Number three, the only timeline that counts is yours. The only timeline that matters is the timeline that works for you and your dog. Number four, lean into the discomfort that is learning. Lean into that. When you feel uncomfortable, with a task, it's because you're learning something new. Okay, Brene Brown calls it an FFT, which is an effing first time. I learned that on her podcast. Genius. So now I just go, oh, this is an FFT, right? So I'm trying to teach something new. I'm trying to train the dog something I am struggling with. And I just go, oh, this is an FFT. That means I got to lean into this discomfort. It's going to suck because it's the first time and it's okay. And finally, the last one is just do the next right thing. That counts for pretty much anything, anywhere in life. But it's really important for this third dog paralysis. Just do the next right thing. And sometimes the next right thing is don't train for a week, right? Don't train for a month. Just go on a hike, feed the dog cookies, whatever. The next right thing for me right now, recovering from surgery, looks like sometimes going out to my training studio and training both of my dogs through like two or three turns when their normal amount of turns is more like seven to ten. Sometimes the next right thing is walking really slow through the woods while my dogs run and run and run. Sometimes the next right thing is taking a a day off and you know just jamming out to the new Taylor Swift album. (laughs) Like That can be the next right thing too. Always just do the next right thing, whatever it is that's in front of you, and you will get there. You will get to the top of that mountain if you keep putting one foot in front of the other. Love that third dog, embrace that third dog, and 
don't let fear paralyze you. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Alrighty, I've got some Patreon questions. This one comes from Kristen. Can we unpack the duration marker good? I know many sporting dog trainers use it to tell the dog they will be reinforced in position and to continue doing what they're doing. I really struggle with seeing the benefits of it. I recently watched a video clip where Susan Friedman discusses its place in animal training. If I recall, she really had some questions about its relevancy since we could simply split the duration into workable pieces for the learner. Glad you're back. Hey Kristen, so let me give everybody a little bit of background in case they're not, they don't know. Um, a lot of people use what they're calling a duration marker in dog training and it's essentially a marker that informs the dog to stay where they are because the food is coming to them. So rather than when I click, the dog is released to go for the food. If I say good, I want my dog to stay where he is so that I can feed him in position. Dr. Susan Friedman is certainly correct that there are other ways to achieve duration. I do find that the duration marker is helpful for some of my human learners um, to be clear in their food delivery for their dog that is in place. I actually only use it in fitness work um, when I want my dog to stay on a piece of equipment. So like, let's say they've got, um, they're doing a bridge between two donuts. I don't want them to jump off the donuts to get their food, but I do want to feed them through the behavior because I might want them to hold that bridge for 30 seconds. And while my dogs have stays that are that long, um, I build those stays by using that marker rather than releasing them to food. It builds different behaviors um, for me. So if I build the stay by using a release to reinforcement, which is how I train my stays in general. It's how I train my stay for agility. It's how I train my uh, two on two off static behavior is I reinforce with release to food, which is exactly what Friedman is saying we should be doing instead. It builds a more explosive behavior then for me. So the dog is like this coiled spring of anticipation, which I do not want on my fitness equipment. I want the dog to always be in kind of deliberate methodical movements on the fitness equipment. So that's where I use it. And I gotta be, I gotta tell you, I don't use it a lot of other places. Um, and if you struggle to see the benefit of it, Kristen, then don't use it. That means you don't have a, a need for it. Um, as far as all of these kind of marker systems go, it is important to note that um, for me, I only use what I actually need. I don't train markers just because somebody else trained those markers. Um, I train them as I need them. So if I'm training and I go, wow, I wish I had a way to tell the dog to just wait because I'm bringing the food to them, then I teach them that. If I come up with, oh, you know, I wish I could send the dog backwards to a dish that's 20 feet behind them to reinforce this behavior, then I train that. So. I train those things as they come up in my training rather than having like a set list of markers that I think everybody needs. I, I don't think that that's true. Um, I don't think, I don't even think that the majority of people should be training location specific markers because I think the majority of people need to just get clean on using one marker um, in the first place. So Kristen, if you don't need it, then you don't need it and you shouldn't train it. And so I hope that helps. I hope that made it really clear. 
Rendina, welcome back. Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering if it's okay to combine multi-sport training into one session, such as some healing work for obedience and weave pull work for agility. Do dogs care as it's all just tricks or is it confusing to switch back and forth in the context of one session? Um, for me, it's all training and I will frequently do all of the above in any given session. In fact, I really like my dogs to be able to do obedience in an agility context. I like them to cleanly be able to transition between kind of maybe the more exciting sport into the other sport and not have a problem with that and not have any conflict with that. So I I do it deliberately and I sometimes can inject some excitement into my obedience behaviors by maybe including a tunnel or something fun like that. And I can also inject some more thought into some of my agility behaviors by asking for heel work or position changes um, in between sets of whatever I'm doing for agility. So definitely cross train, do all the things. It's all training. I want my dog to see it all as the same thing. Paige is, um, gives me a little bit of background on a surgery that her dog had and her dog is doing just fine. He's a seven-year-old border collie, um, but he is blind. So that's why he had to have the surgery. And so she's asking about um, any tips on teaching shaping with a blind dog. We use a multi-marker multi system, which I have adapted to his new limits and it's working well. However, I feel very clumsy training new things with him since I used to use a lot of targeting to create the foundation for the new behavior. Any suggestions would be greatly appreciated. So Paige, you know, that's a bummer. Obviously blindness is a tough thing um, to overcome. And I'm gonna be full disclosure here, I've never trained a blind animal. I have trained some, an some animals that were a little bit maybe vision impaired, but not fully blind. I would say that rather than a target, I would use a lure and I would get the blind dog very, very comfortable following a lure, which means that I'm never gonna lure the dog up onto something he didn't know was there. I'm never gonna lure him into a situation that is potentially uncomfortable. I want him to trust the lure indefinitely. So I would work really hard on the trust of the lure. Um, and then from there, I would play around with, you know, other kinds of prompts like physical prompts so if you want the dog to move maybe you want to use a nose target to move the dog from a to b well what if you put your hand what if you teach the dog to come into your hand if you touch his shoulder and move your hand away a little bit will he move his shoulder to meet your hand again so things like that i would just start to try to get um really creative with the way that you're gonna prompt those new behaviors. And I would not be afraid of lures and I would not be afraid of um, honestly physical manipulation that the dog trusts. So again, you know, you may need to mold the dog into a position and that is fine to do as long as the dog trusts what you're doing. If the dog's kind of body sensitive, doesn't like that, like I've got one dog that I could totally do this with and I've got another dog that would be completely offended. Um, then you maybe don't wanna go that route. But I would just be, I would be focusing on luring. I would also think about a duration target rather than like a bop target. So rather than the dog bopping one thing, teach him to keep his nose on something and you can actually guide him better that way because he'll stay in contact with the target. Last one uh, from Becky. Hi, Becky. Working on food stashing with my beagle. She's really good about leaving the stash and doing a couple of easy skills. We're stuck building more skills before going back to the stash. 
So let me just interject and explain what Becky's talking about here. I use um, something I call reinforcement stashing to prepare my dogs for the ring, specifically, especially for the obedience ring. Meaning I show them the food, I show them where it is, and then I put it somewhere. And then we go away from the food to perform our kind of ring routine. And then we go back to the food to eat because that's a sustainable reinforcement procedure for the obedience ring. And so that's what Becky's working on with her dog. So she goes on to say, if she gets sticky, won't respond to well-known cue, I go back to the stash and open the jar and let her look at, sniff the cookies, then I try again. Then I ask for something super easy and I pay. I'm guessing I'm asking for too much too soon or expecting perfect skills instead of paying for the effort of choosing to work when she knows I don't have food on me. So should I not be worried if she messes up a skill but is still in the game and pay her anyway? For example, doesn't wait to be called on a recall but runs past the stash to a front. Um, should I pay that and not worry about the weight, right? Not sure how to get more duration before returning to the stash. So lots of questions here, Becky. Let me break it down. Um, number one, if there is a failure to respond, do not go to the stash and open it up. Because as you do that, you are reinforcing that behavior even though you didn't give her the food because she thought you were going to give her the food. And then when you don't, you're just disappointing her, basically. So you're probably weaving some yucky feelings in there. So I would stop going to the stash and admiring the food. I know that that's something that people do. Um, I, would st- I wouldn't do that. So then there, it's further problematic because then you ask for something really easy and then give her the food. So very quickly, you could build a chain there of her failing to respond, admiring the food with you, and then getting the food easier the second time. So I would scratch that procedure. If she fails something that you expected her to get right, just ask her for something else and make a mental note of what she failed and move on. So let's say you're doing a drop on recall. You call her, you say down, she doesn't down. She keeps walking and comes into front. Tell her she's so cute and good. Sit her and leave out, lead out again. So basically just put her in a sit, tell her to stay walk across the ring again and then maybe um actually do a front to that time pay the front you know things like that or maybe do it down or if she misses let's say a utility signal just give her the next signal you know just pause definitely have a pause inserted in there and then give her the next signal um rather than trying to you know, if, if you dumb it down, water it down, give her something really easy to do, she's just gonna keep waiting for those opportunities to get the food. If she messes up a skill, so this is another thing, when I'm working on ring behaviors, so rather than, um, I have what I call skill sessions and then I have ring prep sessions. So if you're in a ring prep session, which is what you're talking about, the dog, is, you and the dog are in the ring and you've got the food out of the ring. I know that there's going to be a reduction in quality in some of my work, and I'm just going to pay attention to that reduction and go, okay, that behavior isn't quite ready for prime time. I need to go build it up with some reinforcement history before I bring it back into this context. In your specific example of she didn't hold her weight, she just came into the front yeah, I would just pay that. I wouldn't worry about that. So that's like, that's a failure that you go, oh, okay, so that's interesting. I need to build some reinforcement history for my weight. So that's just information. She's trying to do exactly what you want her to do. And she ran past the stash to do her front, which is huge. So yes, I would just pay it. Um, Allow for some reduction in criteria, but pay attention to that reduction because it should get better as you go. And if it's not, you need to uh, remove it from context and fix it. And then one little just tip 
for the in-between phase. So as you're getting the dog ready from doing like high high uh, rate of reinforcement outside of the ring to that low rate of reinforcement inside of the ring, I will sometimes have you just put a cookie in your hand and the dog knows there's a cookie in your hand, but you never give it to them. So that's kind of the in-between where there's food on your person, but you don't give it to them. You still go to the stash to reinforce. That sometimes helps your behavior stay higher quality as you're working, as you're working through this. So hopefully that was helpful to you, Becky. And thank you guys so much for being my patrons and asking your questions. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.